Fun Seekers. This episode of the podcast is entitled The Insurgency Began and You Missed It, a quote from the music trailer you just heard. I originally published this podcast episode on October 30th, 2014, for at that time I saw on the horizon the coming insurgents. But it wasn't until 2017 that the insurgents officially began and took shape. It is for that reason that I wrote the book, Insurgents Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which released June 5th, 2018. So this is the updated version of the podcast episode. To learn more about the book, just go to insurgents.org and you'll access all of the information about the book. What follows is the first interview I did on the insurgents with Brian Del Turco. I hope you enjoy it. So why is it that radical terrorists seem to have more allegiance than we do as Christ followers? Let's, uh, let's, let's take a look at that. Hey, Frank, there's been a lot of books written about the kingdom of God. What compels you to write yet another book about the topic? Do you feel that what you're writing about here has not yet been written about? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll answer it by saying that I choose not to write a book. A book chooses me. In other words, I have a burden or a vision or something burning in my heart with a passion. And then I, I look to see if it's already been written. I look to see if someone else has articulated it. And over the past, oh, I don't know, I'd say past decade, I have been looking at this phrase, the gospel of the kingdom in the New Testament. Of course, Jesus used it. We see Paul preaching the kingdom. We see John the Baptist preaching it. Mm -hmm. We see Peter preaching it and the other apostles. And, and so I went on a personal journey to understand what was the gospel of the kingdom and came away with certain perspectives on it. And that led me to see what other people were saying about it. And I familiarized myself. I, I will not say I've read every book <laughs> written on the subject, but I familiarized myself with the landmark books on the subject of the kingdom of God written over the last 50 years. Some I read word for word, some I skimmed, some I just perused, uh, skimmed and dipped. Mm -hmm. But I familiarized myself with all of them. And what I found was that none of those books did what I had in my heart to present when it came to the gospel of the kingdom. And to be more specific, I was looking for a book that comprehensively and clearly presented the gospel of the kingdom in its original power, or at least as close as possible to the original power by which it was presented. The other thing is I was looking for a book that was not heady, not academic, but very easy to read, very accessible. Sure. And many of the landmark books on the kingdom of God written over the last 50 years. Brian, you know, <laughs> my IQ stops at 90. 
90. <laughs> um, I could, that's a joke, folks. Yeah. Um, I would get just as much out of some of these books if I had turned the book upside down and read it. I mean, that's how dense. Oh. It's like reading hieroglyphics. Yeah, it's uh, like ivory, just, ivory just, tower writing, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I was looking for a book that was easy to read mm-hmm. and accessible. Another thing I was looking for, Brian, in these books was – a book that did not align with the agenda of the progressive left Ooh. or the conservative right. right. And most of the books written on the kingdom of God, there is an agenda and it's either left or right. Hmm. The other thing is most of the books on the kingdom cover one or two dimensions of the kingdom of God and leave the rest out. Okay. So it becomes a very lopsided presentation. And here's the biggie. The final thing I was looking for was not only a book that was easy to read, that covered the waterfront on the kingdom of God, that presented the gospel of the kingdom Mm -hmm. with clarity and power and passion, but was also practical and gave people practical handles, practical exercises on how to implement it. And I guess the last thing is one that did not leave you under a pile of guilt (laughs) after you read it. Because what I've noticed is that whenever parts of the gospel of the kingdom are presented, and usually in in all these books I've read, parts of the gospel of the kingdom kind of bleed through. And whenever it does, it's always virtually, virtually always presented with guilt, legalism, condemnation, shame, and the reader is just under a pile when they're finished. Yeah. (laughs) And so I wanted to write a book that did all the things I was looking for. And so that's that therefore is the origin and the birth of insurgents. Okay. It was my attempt to present the gospel of the kingdom in ways that I've just described. Yeah, well, I, I can tell you this book is both substantive and yet fully accessible and readable. Um, and, I, and I love that. And anybody who's familiar with any of your writings will, will notice that. It's a grand topic, isn't it? The kingdom of God. It's a sweeping story. And yes. yet certainly... Jesus, if, if you read Jesus in the Gospels, he's, it's, it's for the people. It's, it's not mm-hmm. for the religious establishment or the... Um, you mentioned there's two enemies to the authentic Gospel. What, what are they? Well, as I see it, the two enemies are counterfeit Gospels. One of them is what I call the Gospel of Legalism. Mm-hmm. And by that, I'm not talking about the idea that you have to work to be saved. I think most Christians, at least in the Protestant faith, understand that salvation is not by your works. We're saved by grace. Mm -hmm. But the gospel of legalism is a little bit different. It says you stay saved by your works, and you make God happy by your performance. A little more subtle. Absolutely. And what, what this does to those who hear it, and it's pervasive, is they're constantly trying to be a better Christian. They're tr- constantly trying to make God happier. They're constantly trying to to be a better person. And I'll, and I'll add this sentence, by their own energy. And oftentimes they don't realize that's what they're doing, but it's by grit, by gum, by gumption, they're trying <laughs> to make God happy. And legalism is the great albatross of most Christians. Most Christians, when they're very honest, you peel back the layers of pretense and you get alone with them and they're honest, they will say, I feel a constant hangover of guilt. 
I'm not doing enough for the Lord. I could be doing so much more. I could be be so much better. And this is not the gospel as presented in the New Testament. Jesus Christ has come to remove condemnation and shame. And the gospel certainly, the gospel of the kingdom is challenging and it is probing, let me tell you. But it's liberating. And so I try to bring this through in the book that the gospel of the kingdom, the lordship of Christ, is not the gospel of legalism. The other enemy of the gospel is it's the opposite. It's the other side of, of the horse, so mm-hmm. to speak, mm-hmm. that we fall off. Yeah, fall and off one side is, or the other. Exactly. There's a great statement by, by Martin Luther on that score. But it's the gospel of libertinism, and this is the idea that we're under grace, we're all imperfect, God understands us, he's done it all. So it really doesn't matter how we live. And people who have imbibed this gospel reject any kind of feeling or sense of conviction or if their conscience is pricked, they believe that is bad. That is something that we should avoid. God's perfectly happy with the way we are right now. And this tends to lead people into a a life of carnality and fleshliness. They tolerate things that that will not coexist with Jesus Christ, and they will never move on with the Lord and be a useful vessel in his kingdom. So those are the two enemies. It's either legalism on the one side or libertinism on the other. And the gospel of the kingdom breaks through both it transcends both, and it leads to a submission and a surrender to the Lordship of Christ out of a love born for him that has come out of a seeing of his glory and his majesty and his compassion and his infinite mercy. And it also leads to an incredible liberty. And so I try to articulate this in the beginning of the book. There's one section of the book called Unveiling the King's Beauty, and that is where we must begin. Anytime we tell people, and I'm speaking to pastors and preachers and teachers now, to follow the Lord or to obey the Lord or to respond to the Lord, that must always come after we have presented Jesus Christ to God's people in such a powerful way that they are left breathless Mm. and that the natural response is to surrender and to submit to him, not out of religious duty or obligation or guilt or condemnation or shame or fear, but out of the sight of peerless worth. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, you actually say in your book that being fascinated and captured by the beauty of Jesus is what fuels fuels us to to in, engage the kingdom of God and, and 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 to and to be steadfast. It is the key to responding to the gospel of the kingdom. We cannot respond any other way. If we do, it's either going to be one of legalism or one of libertinism and both are going to get us into spiritual trouble. Yeah. Did I hear in your response that legalism is a is a bigger problem in the church than libertinism? I think overall, yes. In my observation, it is. Most of the Lord's people, in my experience, and I've traveled all over the world and spoken in many different places and many different demographics, and I hear from readers constantly, most of them are are struggling with a guilt complex or they're addicted to feeling guilty, and that's their motivation for serving the Lord. It kind of sounds like this. Hey, Jeff, did you hear Sunday's sermon? Oh, no, I missed it. What was it like? Oh, man, it was so great. I was so convicted. Oh, I was so convicted. And what they're really saying is, what gets me out of bed to serve Jesus Christ is guilt. 
Okay. And they're calling it conviction, but really it's guilt. And they're addicted to it because if you take that away, there's no motivation for the Lord. There's no motivation to serve him. There's no motivation to follow him. Mm. And so we have a very large group of, of Christians whose fuel and energy is that of guilt and condemnation. Yeah, yeah. What tends to happen, Brian, though, is that in response to that, we have preachers preaching grace to an extreme. Yes, I was going to ask you about and, this. And, and they're basically saying, listen, you're living under guilt and condemnation. You don't have to because Jesus Christ loves you the way you are. You're under grace. You're in Christ. And therefore, therefore, forget about what he said. Forget about what he taught. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, that, at the end of the day, that may not be said explicitly like that, although some preachers have actually done that and said whatever Jesus taught when he was on earth in the Gospels, that's not for you. That was for the Jews. That was for those under the Old Covenant. Yeah. And so they have basically diluted the Gospels of any application for us today. But others, they may not come out and say that, but that's the end result. And so we have a lot of the Lord's people thinking they're walking in freedom when in fact they're walking in the flesh and they're okay with it. They've in effect silenced their conscience. Yeah. And so that's what we're seeing also. And I think that most Christians, I'd say most in my experience and observation, Brian, either tilt one way or the other, but neither camp has ever heard the earth-shaking, cataclysmic, mind-blowing gospel of the kingdom, <laughs> which liberates and also causes a surrender to Jesus Christ for the long haul and through the fire and the smoke and the trials to come out on the other side. Yeah. Wow. I, um, you know, I think C.S. Lewis said something like, you know, most people have never really heard the full offer of what Jesus offers, even within the church. There's not, there's mm -hmm. not been an adequate presentation or authentic modeling of it. And uh, thus, most people don't don't come into it. Um, so how do you define the kingdom of God? What is it? Sometimes this can seem kind of ethereal or abstract. What is the kingdom yeah. of God? The kingdom of God and also the gospel of the kingdom is something that we would be mistaken to try to define it because Scripture never defines it. What it does is it exemplifies it. Jesus was a storyteller. Uh, earlier we were talking about some of these books on the kingdom that are so heady and dense and mindy and academic uh, that the average person will never be able to understand them. Well, Jesus came not as a philosopher. He didn't come as an academic, as a scholar. He came as a storyteller. And when he presented the kingdom and he preached the gospel of the kingdom, he did it through story. Our culture is very much conditioned to get information in sound bites. Mm -hmm. For me to try to define the mm -hmm. kingdom of God in an interview like this is like putting the Atlantic Ocean in a coffee mug. Yeah. Yeah. It cannot be done. And, and that's why I wrote Insurgents. And my hope, you know, I'm, I'm shooting for a goal, and I know it's a high goal. But I'm hoping that what was in my heart got onto the page and will be able to be imparted to those who read it. And, it, and if that happens, I do believe the Lord is going to bring every reader way beyond where they're at spiritually right now. That's my hope and prayer. And you'll see, even because I'm, I was under such a weight of humility and feeling inadequate to present this incredible gospel in this book— that I break out in prayers throughout it. 
Okay. Asking the Lord for mercy, not only for myself, but for the readers. So time will tell if it has the effect that I want it to. but, But I certainly do believe that the time is ripe for this message to get out the way that I have presented it. And I do hope that it catches fire. I will say that I definitely believe there is an insurgence happening right now in our time. I think it started recently from what I can see. And I do believe that it's going to continue. And that, that's why I felt like the timing of this book was right. Okay. Do you feel, speaking of timing, do you feel that prior to the kingdom coming in its fullness at the Lord's second return? You know, it's the, al- it's the already, not yet, that famous phrase, right? The kingdom is here already, but yes. it's not yet here in its completeness. And yes. that is reserved for when Jesus comes again. But do you feel that as we approach that horizon, do you think that the Holy Spirit is pushing on this edge to restore kingdom understanding and really a working knowledge of the kingdom and practically, you know, practical, practically speaking? Uh, do you feel that that's something? Because restoration of truths and practice throughout church history seems to come in, in yes. waves, it, it seems. The answer to that would be yes, and I'll make it more specific. I believe that before the Lord returns again, there will be, and there is, I believe, happening right now in seed form, a recovery, a restoration, or a reclaiming of the gospel of the kingdom, Mm -hmm. that kingdom that was presented in the first century. Now, the problem, as with everything in theology and spiritual matters, is if you enunciate a term like the gospel, the kingdom, a thousand and three different ideas are going to be populating in people's heads as to what that is. So I believe a clear, passionate, comprehensive, powerful restoration of that message will definitely mark what will happen with at least a remnant of God's people before the Lord comes back. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that it is restoration. And I really have a burden for the younger generation, particularly 20s and 30s, who are enamored with Jesus Christ, who have given their life to the Lord. Uh, Many of them are in ministry. I know from talking to so many of them, they do not know what the gospel of the kingdom is. I wrote this book, Brian, so that someone in high school could understand it, who's just vaguely familiar with the Bible. That's why the chapters are so short. That's why I don't abbreviate the biblical texts. I write them out. That's why it's formatted the way it is. But yet, because of the substance of it, but I believe that a scholar and a theologian will benefit from it as well. So it was a pretty tall order to try to <laughs> reach all those audiences and between. But I do believe there is a restoration. You know, when Jesus came the first time, his first coming, the incarnation, yep. you had the religious system going on sound and strong, and it was corrupt, by the way. You had the world system sound and strong through the Roman Empire, and of course, it was corrupt, by the way. But you had this remnant, this very small group of people who were really born through John the Baptist's ministry. And boy, you talk about a powerful message of the kingdom of God. You look at John the Baptist. I mean, that guy was raw. He was rough. And his message was incredibly radical. And you had these people like Simeon and Anna, these older people who really stood outside the system, both the world system and the religious system of that day that had become corrupt. So Jesus came not 
during a time where everyone was just waiting for him and following him and uncompromising against the world system and the religious system, that's not the case. There was only a remnant that was like that. And I believe that the second coming is going to be much like the first coming, meaning that there will be a remnant, but it's not going to be something that's going to sweep the world to the point where all the churches in the universe are going to be obeying the gospel of the kingdom. And the world systems is still going to be here, and the corruption of the religious system will still be here as well. Mm. It's interesting, and uh, it really, you know, challenges us not to have a popular mindset, like what is most popular. Yes, amen. You know, um, and we have a lot of like pop church or pop theology that appeals to the masses, you know. Um, Wow. But it's clear when you read the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus overarching by far, his overarching theme is his teaching about the kingdom. Absolutely. And, and like, if you read the red letters, he talked about it. If you have a red letter edition of the New Testament, right? He talked about it in the red letters. And in the black letters, he modeled it, he demonstrated it, and he challenged his followers to do the exact same. Is, is that right? Absolutely. And that was the message that the apostles carried, including Paul. And there has been a disservice in our time where people have tried to separate Jesus and Paul. Yes, I know. You know, they said, well, Jesus preached the kingdom, but Paul preached grace. And I basically eviscerate that whole way of thinking in the book, because Peter and Paul and John and the others preached the same message that Jesus Christ did. And Jesus Christ also preached grace. He didn't just preach the kingdom. (laughs) In fact, the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace are two sides to the same coin. Yes. They are distinct, but they are not separate. And I established that in the book as well. The bane of most books is we read them, we like them, we might highlight them, and then they go back on the bookshelf and then we get the next book. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know what you mean. And yeah. there's no transformation yeah. that happens. So I'm trying yeah. to I'm trying to make this not only a book that casts a vision, a yes. powerful vision, touches the heart and the mind, but also gives them practical solutions and exercises and practical handles, really, so they they can walk out the message in shoe leather and that it will be, in fact, transformative. And that's my goal and that's my hope. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very clear in your book. I love that, the way you encourage activation like that is exactly right. We read these books at the surface level of our intellect, you know. And, and we're hungry for information even, maybe even hungry for revelation, but we keep reading. And I just like the phrase, you know, developing a working knowledge of the kingdom. What do you think about that? I mean, there's like the conceptualization of what the kingdom is, but then there's also on the flip side of the coin, practicing a working knowledge of the kingdom. There is the hearing of the gospel of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And then there is the experiencing of the gospel of the kingdom, and then there is the obeying of the gospel of the kingdom. Mm. And and Paul actually uses that phrase, obey, when he talks about the gospel of the kingdom. And of course, with a legalistic mindset, and many of us have been either in a tradition that was legalistic or we're in one right now, when we hear obey, we think of it in legalistic terms. Okay, this is something I have to do now. I'm obligated. But in the New Testament, the word obey really means respond. Mm. And it's a response of an open heart to the Lord's action and activity. Mm-hmm. And it is only His power and His mercy and grace by which we can respond to the gospel of the kingdom. But when we do open our hearts to it and we respond to it, the adjustment of the heart 
and the transformation and impact is radical. I mean, it is really radical. And that's where this term radicalization comes in that I use in the book. Why is it that radical terrorists have so much a greater commitment and devotion to their false cause Mm -hmm. than what most Christians have toward Jesus Christ. (laughs) And uh, I remember, Brian, years ago, and this sort of set me on this journey of understanding what the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom was. I was watching a documentary about these people in these radical terrorist groups, and I was just awed at the kind of 150% commitment in every aspect of their life that they had toward those groups. Mm. And then I came across, and people can find this in the book, I actually give the story of people who were Christians, they were raised in a Christian home, they attended church, they had uh, some sort of commitment to Christ, and yet they were recruited to these terrorist groups. And they went. And they went with it, and not only that, but their commitment, devotion, and full life surrender to that cause eclipsed way beyond what they had toward Christ. What's what's fueling Well, that? I, I'll tell you what I believe is fueling it. The kind of convert that is produced is the result of the kind of gospel that is preached. Mm-hmm. The gospel that most Christians hear today, Brian, is not the gospel that was presented in the first century. It's what? been diluted okay. of its cutting edge, of its power, and therefore— The result is what we see, which is basically this, that most Christians today, in my perspective and in my understanding and my observation, are just as part of the world system as most unbelievers are. They just have an additional part to their life, a supplemental part to their life, and that's the Christian part. But in terms of their attachment to the things of the world, money, possessions, power, etc. Addiction, you talk about that. Oh, absolutely. It's not much different. And it's a symptom that we have not heard and responded to the gospel of the kingdom. And that's what the insurgence is all about. The insurgence is a revolutionary, powerful war against the world system in the spirit of God and a resurgence of the preaching, the experience, and the responding to the gospel of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm being general and I'm being simplistic here. There's a lot more nuance to this, but basically it's either you receive the gospel and now you have your fire insurance policy, your get out of hell free card, and so you're going to go to heaven when you die. It's either that or it's receive the gospel and now you get to be part of the kingdom of God to make the world a better place. Yeah, the social gospel. And look at how we can change things and let's be activists. And that really is just another form of the first presentation. It just cuts the moral line at a different place. You know, conservatives, they are trying to get a seat at Caesar's table to change laws that they feel are immoral or laws that will curb immorality. And then you have on the other side, on the, on the left side of, of the team, they're also trying to find a place at Caesar's table that affect laws. But... Those laws would say, for example, help the poor and the marginalized and uh, the disenfranchised. And so they just the two sides, Brian, cut the moral line in a different place, but they're still operating with the same premise. I see. And they're still moving with the same fuel, as it were. And they're both trying to 
become part of and leverage the world system to affect a godly cause. And I talk a lot about this in the book as well, because the gospel of the kingdom transcended both of those viewpoints. And we had both in the first century. We had the Sadducees and we had the Pharisees. Mm. And they both represented the progressive left on the one hand yeah. and the conservative right on the other. And then yeah. you had Jesus Christ and his little band of apostles and some women. And he was a revolutionary and he did not sit at Caesar's table, nor did he want to. His way was diametrically opposed to it. And it was completely different. And I believe that the Lord is recovering that vision and that way and that mindset once again in our time. You know, both parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, were in collusion with Rome. And so they were, so to speak, in bed with the world system. Coming back to the point, I, I really believe that we are living in a day where God is calling a people to himself in a way that transcends both left and right. And I'm talking politically as well as theologically. Mm. And that there is this thing in the New Testament that, that is presented on just about every page from Matthew to Revelation of the gospel of the kingdom. And I hope that this book, Insurgents, will be the antidote to so much of the shallowness, the superficiality, and the anemic impact that God's people have today, both in the spiritual realm as well as in the world. And I'm speaking in generalities here, but I do think the need is great, and I do think the time is ripe. What about, help me with the pronunciation of this word, ecclesia or ecclesia? What's the correct pronunciation? <laughs> I've always heard it pronounced ecclesia. Other people pronounce it ecclesia, and it's also spelled in two ways, E-K-K, and then yeah. the more popular way of doing okay. it, the less scholarly is E-C-C, okay. but I use the E-K-K. All right. It's the Greek word in the New Testament, right, which we translate, we end up translating as church. I'm actually not, sure, I'm not, actually not sure how that came about in church history or in translational history, but what does the word mean? It means like a gathering or an assembly or a convening of citizens? The original meaning of that term, just as a standalone, is an assembly of people who gather together. But in the New Testament context, the way that the apostles use it, and even the way that Jesus used it, he used it a few times, yep. it has to do with a group of people, and I'm going to use terrorist terminology here, but it was in the first century a group of people who lived in face-to-face -face community together, they saw themselves as brothers and sisters. They lived as though they were family. Wow. And they were radicalized to this person, this first century prophet, whose name was Jesus of Nazareth. And by radicalization, when they were baptized in water in the name of Jesus Christ, they were dead to everything else. Every attachment they had, their allegiance to all the flags of the world system, went under that water, and it was a burial. And they came out a citizen of a new kingdom, a new creation, a new family, a new community that lived very differently from the rest of the world, including the religious world around them. And so that's why they caught it both from the Romans and they caught it both from the Jewish world around them as well as the pagans. They lived distinct, and they were, in, in effect, a colony of heaven on this planet. Yeah. 
their values and their lifestyle was completely different. And that's what the gospel of the kingdom produced in the first century. And they were so dedicated to that way of life. It was actually called the way in the book of Acts mm -hmm. because it, was, it wasn't just a belief they held. It was a way of living. They were so dedicated to it that they were willing to give their lives for it mm. and die. And they did. We're talking about the gospel of the kingdom. This is something that was an eruption in the first century. It turned the Roman world on its ear. People could not believe what this community was doing, how they were living, and, and it was magnetic. People were attracted to it. Wow. If a person hears the gospel of the kingdom, receives it and responds to it, one of the things that's going to be born in their heart is a desire for face-to-face -face community. Mm -hmm. They're going to want to have others on the journey. And that's one of the things I recommend is to have the book read in groups, to read it with a friend. You know, go through it first yourself, but then go through it a second time with a friend. And the way it's structured and the way it's set up, it's very conducive for that. And the Lord will lead the rest of the way, okay. you know, and each person's going to be different yeah. uh, in that setting. I mean, would you say that the gospel of the kingdom has within it the DNA of the of the ecclesia? They really, it really cannot be separated, right? Yes, it has within it the DNA of the kingdom community. Yeah. That's going to definitely look different in different places, but it's certainly going to have some of the same ingredients, like face-to-face -face yeah. community, taking care of one another, a view of money and wealth that is very different from the American Western view. You know, that was one of the sore points of Jesus' teaching, is he was so radical about wealth. He did not have a very good view of wealth in the sense of people should pursue it and acquire it and use it for themselves. I mean, he, he said some very cutting things about wealth and possessions. That's part of the gospel of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. But again, I give practical steps on how we can actually do this feasibly in response to the Lord. Very good. So you do sh share stories in the book about people who have joined the insurgents. Yes. There's many stories all throughout the book. Uh, I have one example. There was a young man who was brought up in a conservative fundamentalist church. And, you know, he was the good Christian. He did all the right things. And he came to realize that his gospel that he had believed in was lacking in that it wasn't really helping people now. And so as he grew up, he began to see needs around him, poor people, oppressed people, marginalized people. And so he was introduced to the progressive view of the kingdom of God, mm. which is very heavy on social activism and helping the poor and the oppressed and standing for justice. So he got involved in that. And after a few years of that, he basically burned out and realized that the problems were way beyond any human or any group of people mm. could resolve. So there was an emptiness in response to following that gospel, and he actually allowed some of the things that I'd say he was convicted about in the beginning during his fundamentalist upbringing, certain things that were immoral. Uh, he's kind of, you know, was slack on that and started to get involved in things he later realized he shouldn't have, and so he became addicted to certain things. Okay. And one day he heard the gospel of the kingdom, and it just blew his circuitry. And it was so different from what he learned in the fundamentalist group that he grew up with. And it was so different from what he was learning from the progressive group that he had been with. And he left both. And he met Jesus Christ for the first time. And wow. when I say met him, I mean, he met him. And his life so, was transformed. And he was, he was neither a Christian that you can say this guy's on the left or the right. He was neither. Wow. He was and responding to the kingdom of God. And I tell a lot of stories like that to give people an understanding that this yeah. insurgence is not only powerful, 
but it is current and it is real. So did did he meet did he know the Lord early on and did he like meet him again? Is there a sense in which we meet the Lord again? Yes. Sort of yes, a next absolutely. level next absolutely. level thing. Absolutely. Well, I'll give you the story of Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, I think anybody who's read his great Summa Theologica, volumes of theology, uh, he had one of the greatest mental acumens that a human being can have. He had a titanic mind, (laughs) and he obviously knew the Lord. Well, later in his life, he had a revelation of Jesus Christ. And I don't mean that in a spooky way. I don't mean he, he had a vision. I mean what Paul called that your hearts be enlightened, that the Holy Spirit revealed to you the Lord. In Ephesians 1, you can read it. Yeah. The eyes of your heart be enlightened. And he had a glimpse of Christ that was so powerful and overwhelming that he stopped writing his Summa Theologica. Really? And he was asked, after you've had this experience with the Lord, what do you say about what you've written? And in effect, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, what I have seen in prayer has made everything else look like straw. In other words, he had really met the Lord in a way that he never had before, and it made everything else he had written seem unimportant. Wow. And that's an example of meeting the Lord again. There are dimensions to the kingdom. In the one hand, if we're born from above, we enter the kingdom. But in another sense, we're entering into the kingdom. Paul told the Galatian Christians, they were already believers. They were already in the kingdom. He said, through much suffering, through much tribulation, through much trial, we enter the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And I use the illustration of uh, Disney World. I live (laughs) near Magic Kingdom, you know, Mickey Mouse and so forth. Once you give the ticket to the attendant and you step into that gate, you're in Disney World. You've entered into it. You've entered the magic kingdom. Yeah. But it is so vast. There are so many places to visit. There are so many areas to journey and explore that you really haven't entered it. <laughs> wow. It's a <laughs> progressive revelation of Disney, exactly, right? Exactly. Exactly. You wow. got it. Yeah. So that's what the kingdom of God is like. We have a beautiful yes. picture of that in the Old Testament. The land of Canaan is a representation of the kingdom of God. What causes that is a hunger and a thirst. And mm. usually we're not hungry and thirsty until we've been presented with the Lord in a unique and okay. powerful and gripping way. And that's what I try to do in the beginning of the book, as I try to open the eyes of Christian readers to see Jesus Christ like they never have before, and that he's more than what we all thought. And this is a growing experience for me. Every day I wake up, I want to know the Lord better. I want to see him in in ways I haven't seen him before, because his riches are inexhaustible. Yes. Paul talked about the unsearchable riches of Christ. You'll never exhaust him. And even at the end of his life, Paul said in Philippians, that I might know him. Mm. Well, Paul, you knew the Lord pretty well, but here he's saying that I might know him. That Philippians 3 was at the end of his life, even after everything, and he's still saying that, that I may know him. Everything wears out eventually, including spiritual disciplines. Everything wears out. The only thing that doesn't wear out is Jesus Christ himself. Yeah. So who's who will benefit most from this new release, Frank, Insurgents Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom? Who's going to benefit most from this? Basically, any Christian who is interested in the kingdom of God, a comprehensive look at it, a unique perspective, tracing it from Genesis all the way to Revelation. What does the scripture teach about the kingdom of God? What was the original gospel that Jesus preached, that Paul preached, John and the rest of the apostles— 
how did what they share all fit together and what does that have to do with us today? It would apply to and benefit that person. It would also benefit anybody who wants to know the Lord better, anybody who wants to take their Christian life to the next level, their spiritual life to the next level. Anyone who looks at a radical terrorist and says, okay, obviously those people are blinded, Mm -hmm. but I can't touch their commitment to their cause. How come I don't have that kind of commitment to Jesus Christ? What's lacking? In a way that transcends and goes way beyond and even doesn't deal with handling guilt or condemnation or shame or fear as tools, which those are the favorite tools of the typical preacher. We're going to guilt you into obeying the Lord. And that never works, Brian. I mean, it might work for a couple of weeks, but it uh, eventually wears out. So, yeah, (laughs) yeah, anybody who has a a hunger and desire to know the Lord better in a more compelling way, yeah, those, those would be the people. So good. So the so the best way we could point people is to insurgents.org, right? Yeah, just insurgents.org. They can go there. They can read a sample chapter. They can look at reviews. They can look at endorsements. They can get a, a taste of the book. I really hope that people will be impacted by this. Much of my heart is in it. Yes, it is so good. And we would encourage you to, to consider writing a review on Amazon um, if, if it resonates with you. And if you feel really good about the messaging, which I think you will, that helps more people to see it. Amazon is a super powerful search engine, helps people to see and be exposed yes. to the book. I, 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 of course, think you'll need to purchase the book from Amazon to do that. But all right. Well, Frank, would you mind just praying for us short, you know, quickly? And um, yes. that we, uh, we would have eyes to see, ears to hear and, and uh, be open to, um, to mm-hmm. the Lord. Sure, Brian. I appreciate it. We'll do that. Father, I just want to ask that uh, every person who's listening to this, uh, you would reach forth your hand and minister healing and blessing and encouragement and even deliverance to the areas in which they struggle. But you would pour your mercy and grace upon them in ways they have never experienced before. Uh, Lord, I ask that everyone who, who dares to read this book would find you in it in capacities and ways that they have never encountered you before, and that you would, in fact, foment the insurgents, Mm -hmm. increase the insurgents, spread the insurgents for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name, we thank you. Amen. Amen. We agree. Frank, thank you for your time. I'm excited about this. Thank you for going through what it takes to live and write something like this. I know it's a leading, bleeding edge. It must be to do that. And um, we appreciate you. We honor you and what you do. 